You're listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate Lisa Leitner. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. Now back to the show with your host, Lisa. Everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Don't IEP Alone podcast. I'm glad to be back with you all after my little pandemic hiatus. Um, with me today is Janice Lloyd. She is a teacher and school administrator at the Highlands School in Bel Air, Maryland, which is not far from me. That is down in Howard County, Maryland, for those of you from the East Coast. Harford County. Um, oh, is it? Oh, it is. I'm sorry. See, I thought it was Howard. My mistake. Yeah. Um, so anyway, after that mistake, why don't you, I'll, I'll let you tell us the rest about yourself then so I don't mess it up. Why don't okay. you? Sorry about that. That's yeah. Okay. Um, I work at the Highland School. I'm an administrator there, small group instructor, and teacher trainer there. So um, I support our teachers with um, knowledge about uh, learning differences and um, remediating dyslexia and ADHD. And and our school does um, work with those students as our our main focus. Okay. Is your school, if I can ask, it's a private school, is it one where students can get like an IEP placement there, or this is just a private, private school where parents just pay a tuition? It is a private, private school. People uh, pay the tuition. Um, there may be options for getting funding, but it is difficult because um, in our state, it is difficult to get, very difficult to get funding. Yeah. And, and your state is not alone. Um, right. It's difficult in all the states. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions and I'm kind of going to ask you something that I've made a golden rule to myself to say, well, this is something I never do in advocacy. And that is, I never try to figure out why, like, I never ask why, like, why do people do things? Because the fact is we don't know why people do things, right? Only they know. But why do you think it is so difficult in the public school system for kids to get appropriate help for dyslexia? And I've been a part of this, you know, I've been an advocate now for 13 years and been with many families and heard from hundreds more with, I find, and maybe you do too, I find dyslexia to be the disability, learning disability that I see the most frequent and most intense gaslighting of parents, where parents are just repeatedly told, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine. And parents know in their gut that their child can't read, the child's clearly struggling and it's, he's fine. He's fine. Why do you think that? And I mean, first of all, would you agree with that, you know, on an anecdotal basis? Of course, I don't have any hard data, but, and then why do you think that is? I, I think part of it is that the schools and the parents want to believe that the schools can handle it and can manage it, can do the necessary instruction. Um, there are many, many wonderful teachers in the public school system, many administrators that are so wonderful in the public school system. Um, I want to support them, but the, I, to me, the difficulty is it's the number of students in the classroom. Um, what I do at my school is I work with three kids to four kids uh, for up to 120 minutes a day, and plus, and that's just in reading. That's not including math. And with that very small group, we can do the remediation that's necessary following the Orton-Gillingham sequences. 
when you have a large class of 15 to 30 to some, some I'm hearing 40 at some times, I'm not sure how teachers can manage. They're trying their best. I get that. And I think the schools are doing a much better job lately of um, providing additional OG training and uh, foundations and OG plus and all of that. And that's great. But you still have the sheer numbers problem. You might have a small group and that might be six, eight, 10 kids in that small group. You're not going to be able to meet every student's needs. Uh, Typically, because of that delay is that students aren't getting the help they need until fourth, fifth, sixth grade, instead of getting it when they first suspect a problem in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've, I, it's, that is what I say. It always comes back to funding and that our schools don't have the money that they need to do, you know, to provide kids with what they need. And I can, and I do, I do have a, a you know, I feel for teachers in my heart because, you go to school and you get a special education degree because you want to help disabled children. And then I can't imagine what it's like to get into a school and not have the resources to do your job. Um, you know, and then we wonder why the turnover is so high. So do you, um, do you, is small group instruction with an appropriate curric- curriculum? Is that really the key to helping dyslexic students? I would say so. Um, small groups, lots of repetition, um, not feeling forced to move on to the next skill just because it's next on the list where you can, okay, they're really not getting it. So let me backtrack and review and constant review because students with dyslexia and other learning differences do have typically have memory issues. And, you know, that repetition becomes super, super important because they have it today and they won't have it two days from now or two weeks from now. So how do you think, um, what, what can parents do as far as being aware of how their child is doing? And then what are the impacts of dyslexia? Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the things you can start really young with some kids, um, what we call phonemic awareness, phonological awareness is the ability to hear sounds, to manipulate sounds. Um, Are they rhyming? Um, Although that's kind of an advanced skill if you think about the phonemic awareness process, it is kind of an advanced skill. But some kids are rhyming at three and four. If they're not rhyming then by five or six, you might wanna start saying, okay, we may may have a problem here. Um, Can they hear birds and airplanes flying around when you're taking them outside for walks? If they're not hearing those sounds, They may not be processing all of the sounds out there. Um, Do they ask you to repeat words a lot? And not because of a hearing deficit, they're not processing what you're saying. Um, So what would you say then? And because I know another like kind of urban legend out there is that parents are frequently told if they say, oh, you know, my husband's dyslexic or my brother's dyslexic and we're suspecting this and all that. Um, I know a common retort is, well, we can't test for dyslexia until third grade, or we can't test until fourth grade. It seems to be that 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 range anyway, second, third or fourth grade, that they give parents these deadlines of and they seem to be kind of arbitrary. I think they are arbitrary. Um, I do know that there are numerous tests available now that were not available maybe 10, 15 years ago that are designed for kids at that kindergarten, first grade level. Um, 
I, I still hear, you know, even recently is that schools are still pushing to delay it. I, th I think they're after to try to keep the kids in the system, hoping that they can do that job. And many of them, many of the teachers and administrators, I do believe, think they can manage it if they just give them a little bit more time. Um, problem is, is you're running that risk of delaying because if there is a more serious issue, you're losing time. Because then you have that fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grader who's not reading. And um, then you have to backtrack even more. And then you're fighting other issues at that point. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a truth bomb. The IEP process never gets easier. You get better. If you do not learn the IEP process and how to use it to your advantage, your child will get left behind. That's exactly why I created the Don't IEP Alone series of advocacy courses for parents. Join us and gain the knowledge, skills, and support you need to navigate the complex world of special education and IEPs. Visit adayinourshoes.org for more information. And what are the impacts to the child then if you delay interventions? Um, school frustration, um, which can lead to some behavior issues, but frustration, not uh, self-doubt, uh, not believing that they are capable of learning. They feel stupid. They feel dumb. Uh, anxiety. Um, what is it? You know, about 25% of kids with um, dyslexia do have some anxiety disorder, and that's not even including just the kids who have just anxiety symptoms. And the more they start beating themselves up, the harder it is for them to read. Um, you know, dyslexia impacts that memory. It also impacts sequencing. Uh, spelling tends to be very, very delayed. Even if you remediate and get a student to read on grade level, you're going to see high school and college and adults who can't spell, even if they can read on grade level. Um, so spelling will uh, continue to be a problem. Fatigue when reading continues to be a problem. Um, that's, so they're reading less. Uh, so not building up their, their background knowledge for reading comprehension. Uh, but also just if you think about a college student who may have to read uh, three chapters in a night, they don't have the fatigue, they don't have the endurance to be able to read as much as they need to. Um, the sequencing is interesting because you're going to get adults who may not know the seasons, the day of the week, um, months of the year. Uh, they may mix numbers up, not because of a math disability, but because of the, dys the dyslexia. They write down 17 as one as 71 instead of 17, and that's really a symptom of the sequencing of dyslexia. Um, and then, of course, because if you have dyslexia, you frequently have ADHD and dysgraphia and dyscalculia, the math disability. It kind of extends from there, too. So it, it, as I always say, it, you know, ADHD or dyslexia, right? they rarely travel alone. Like, no. you know, it's, it's I now that I've been doing this a while, I don't think I've ever met a child who only had one learning disability. Like there, you know, there's always three or four or five kind of right. other conditions going on. Um, so for a parent who may be watching this or listening to this and 
you know, I, I always say parents never come to me with anything, you know, a lot of them just come to me with nothing more than a gut feeling, like mm -hmm. something's not right. You know, it's not, something's not, something's just not right here. And I don't know where to begin. Um, you mentioned the rhyming, but to the parent who might be thinking like, oh, okay, like maybe just, you know, maybe it is dyslexia. And of course there's this myth out there that dyslexia is only ever getting letters backwards, right? Like <laughs> that's what <laughs> dyslexia is. Um, probably should have done this at the beginning, but can you give a, a brief overview of like what dyslexia is as far as like the decoding versus comprehension, right? kind of what it's going to look like in a child? Yeah. Yes, for um, dyslexia, it is a decoding and fluency deficit. Um, the phonological processing, which again is hearing the sounds in the words, is um, a hallmark of dyslexia. Um, typically with a, dyslex a student with dyslexia, a person with dyslexia, they are pretty smart. They, they know a lot. They have a lot of background knowledge. And um, where they're going to struggle is reading the words. Um, sometimes it really surprises me how poorly a student can when you listen to them, their reading sounds uh, very labored, uh, very disfluent, and they are surprisingly able to understand and answer all the questions that you ask them about that text. Um, they skip words when they're reading. Um, they may re read the word on one page and then miss it on the next page. Uh, they're also the ones that will more likely read the word mountain correctly, but skip the word the, of, and, in. They read the longer words miss the smaller words when they're reading. Hmm. Um, you're going to see it in spelling, like I said, because um, that tends to lag significantly. Um, or the, and then uh, fluency, um, labored reading is going to be a hallmark of dyslexia. Um, reading comprehension is almost the opposite because a reading comprehension deficit, those kids look like they can read the words beautifully. Um, they sound good when they read. You think, okay, they are fantastic readers. And then you start asking them about what they've read. And they struggle with um, maybe um, who the characters are, where it took place, or maybe an inference question as to why it happened. And um, so the, the dyslexia is going to be difficulty reading the words but able to understand the passage while comprehension deficit can read the words, but struggles with the comprehension of the passage. Many times though, you're gonna have aspects of both because as we said a few minutes ago, if you have one, you frequently have another. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so then can you get, can you also tell parents um, briefly um, the four Ds? We talked about dyslexia, you mentioned dysgraphia. Dyscalculia. Dyscalculia. Oh, dyspraxia. Dyspraxia. Yes. Can you give a, a brief overview of those? Okay. Yes. Um, so dysgraphia is a writing disability um, that has to do with either handwriting, um, getting words on the page with the hand. The hand gets really tired. Uh, later on, that may show up as a difficulty in getting words out of the head. In other words, they know what it is they want to say, um, but they just can't get it out on paper. Um, dyscalculia is a math disability. Uh, frequently, the issue there is um, recognizing uh, numbers. So if I have five blocks out on the 
desk in front of me, I might ask a student, how many are there? And we'll, you'll kind of glance at it and we'll say, okay, there's five. We may group it in three or two, but we're kind of chunking it. They have to count it each and every single time. They're missing number sense is the problem. Hmm. Um, the relationship between like one and two and three, they're the ones that are going to have to count a lot more um, on their hands. They don't remember that they have five fingers. It's kind of like they always go back to it. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. Um, but again, that number sense is the hallmark of this um, dyscalculia. And then um, dyspraxia is a motor planning issue. Um, my son has that actually. Um, it shows up in his speech. So his uh, articulation becomes um, challenged. Um, even as an adult, or he's 17 now, he is told frequently that it sounds like he has an accent at this point, mm -hmm. even though he has 10 years of speech therapy. Um, it, you know, did it enough so he's functional, he can have conversations, but he just has that accent to him. Um, this praxia, you'll also see, again, motor planning, learning to tie shoes, riding bikes, uh, swinging on swings. Um, my son was delayed on swings and bikes because of the dyspraxia. Um, but basically, he, in his head, he knew what he wanted to say, but he couldn't get his mouth to say it. It's not just a speaking disability, though. Mm -mm. It's, it's, no. it's motor planning. It's, it's, it's motor it's, planning. It's universal motor planning. It is a motor planning issue. And um, yeah, so I learned about it a number of years ago because of my son. And um, I remember when he was four, we were in the car one time and he said, he said, I have what I want to say in my head, but I can't get my mouth to, do, to move the right way. It was kind of sad. Um, but he got it and he's a bright kid function doing very well. well that's doing good. very well. Yeah, that's good. Um, you early in this, in this talk, you mentioned Orton Gillingham. Mm -hmm. um, some people refer to it as OG. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about what OG is? Because again, that's another one of those areas where it's like this ur urban legend. And, and right. I think a lot of parents also um, when they hear, like, oh, my school does OG or our school does Orton Gillingham. It sounds reassuring. Yes. Um, like, okay, oh, he's going to get Orton Gillingham. We're fine now. <laughs> um, so could you give us a, like a little bit for parents information about what that is and what it can and cannot do for dyslexia? Right. Orton Gillingham is a sequence. Actually, I should say multiple different sequences, but it's methodologies. We're, we are teaching skills in a certain order asking that the students master that, demonstrate it back to you before moving on to the next skill. So you may start off with short vowels, short A, short I, short O, and you work on those sounds and letters and writing until the student has that, and then you can kind of move on to the next one uh, with constant review. Um, there's a lot of multi-sensory to that. So there, there may be, we use salt trays here, uh, we also use carpet squares. You can use chalk outside. Um, if, a little bit behind me, you might see I have a chalkboard in here. And the reason for that is because a chalkboard provides a tactile kinesthetic feedback when the kids are writing with a chalkboard as opposed to a whiteboard or a smart board. Um, some people use uh, shaving cream, things like that. For me, it would depend on what the surface is. I want a tactile rough feedback 
which I think some tables are too smooth for. So I'm not a fan of that. Um, using crayons on paper is a good way also of getting that kinesthetic tactile feedback. Uh, but again, we're teaching skills in a structured manner. You know, the, the vowels, the digraphs, the THs, CHs, and moving on as the students are ready. For me, I think that's where the biggest problem in larger organizations where just the problem that as, becomes, as they are ready piece probably right, there. Right. Because if you have to wait for your entire group, are you holding back one kid or are you not allowing a kid to progress? You know, if you have to wait for one kid or one, another student isn't moving because they have it, but they're in that group and they're stuck in that group. Um, I think that if you have the freedom to take the time that you need to take with it, in a smaller uh, school or, you know, other schooling option um, and just take your time through it as the student is ready, you get to the point where sometimes you can make leaps. So all of a sudden they seem to get it and you can make that jump to we can do multisyllable words and we can, you know, go to more advanced skills rather than being stuck on, you know, short vowels or long vowels or whatever skill you're working on with that class. So speaking then to the parent and, you know, cause there are a lot of parents who say, okay, I'm running into brick walls all the time with my public school. And I, I do not have the resources to file for due process. Mm -hmm. um, I do not have the resources to pay for private school. Um, what are there any other options besides that for parents? Is I think it's really pushing at the IEP level. I'm sorry. Yeah. Is there yeah. anything they can kind of do to kind of, assist if if they're really just hitting roadblocks everywhere they go you know okay well number one you can work with the iep team if they have an iep in place to work um, through that to push to make sure that the they are doing what they said they were going to do and that everybody agreed to do um if not you can work at home on some of these skills there are some programs available um that may require a little bit of expense um but could be useful for a homeschooling situation or tutoring on the side. Um, there are also tutoring options available, um, you know, OG tutors that you, you may be able to use also. Um, but for me, it really comes down to let's work on the skill that they need. Do they know all of their short vowels? You know, that A says A as an apple, uh, that I says I as an itch. If they cannot repeat those sounds in the words that they're reading, work on that before moving on to the next one. Just keep working on that until you think they've got it. So how does a parent know, um, you know, there's a lot of programs out there, OG, of course, being one, um, Barton, Linda Mood Bell, Wilson, everybody wants Wilson. You yes. know, they're always asking for Wilson. How does a parent know which program is appropriate for their child to even pursue? If they say, okay, I'm going to pay for this privately and, and do tutoring or, you know, whatever, a private school, how do they know what to look for? Mm -hmm. Make sure... Uh it teaches one skill at a time. And those programs that you mentioned, I have looked at all of them and they are all very good OG programs. Um, sometimes I think parents and teachers get too bogged down into the program. And I think the mistake they made in whatever program they select is that they worry about the next thing instead of watching where their child is. 
Um, so if you buy a program and you realize, okay, they're not getting this, back up to the beginning and try it again. Hmm. You know, add some things to it. Um, you know, you can find some free worksheets on things. You can use YouTube to find some videos on phonological awareness, um, you know, handwriting, things like that to help you out and use that to supplement what you're doing. Um, I think if you allow yourself the freedom to use the curriculum rather than letting the curriculum use you, I think um, that teachers and parents can be, um, can have a strategy to, you know, if it's not working to make the adjustment that they need to make, don't be afraid to change it up. Good. Um, that's, that's really some, some great tips. You know, I, I honestly never thought of that. Like it's, we get to a certain point and we go, Oh, this isn't working. Like it's never occurred to say, well, did we implement it properly or Mm -hmm. is more repetition needed, you know, and things like that. So that's good. Okay. We're at about 24 minutes. So is there anything you want to add? Um, Final thoughts, anything you would love for parents to know? Early intervention, I think is my biggest thought. Um, You know, it's, it's great that the schools, that the larger public schools want to try to help. Um, but if you suspect a problem, reach out to your local child find, reach out to your teachers, um, you know, get some support. And, um, you know, early intervention is going to save you in the end, I think. Great. Great. That's great tips. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you can find Janice at her school, the Highlands School, or it's not the, it's just highlandsschool.net. I will provide the link in the podcast recap. And thank you for attending. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate Lisa Leitner. We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. From self-care tips to common IEP mistakes, there's even more to explore. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast and subscribe to never miss an episode. Until next time, don't IEP alone and you don't have to.